Theology and Apologetics with Thomas Fretwell. We are in 2 Kings chapter 9. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for this time now. I thank you so much for your word. And I pray, Lord, that uh, as David prayed, Lord, you would just open our eyes to see the wonders contained within it. In Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so let me just recap with you. 2 Kings chapter 9. Where are we? We are in the midst of a very dark period of history. The kingdom is no longer united. It is a divided kingdom. We have these two political dynasties who are sort of vying for control. We have foreign, foreign alliances are being made, double-crossing, uh, worthless leaders, contempt for the people, a lot of backstabbing, double-talk, double-speak, lying, corruption at most levels. Now that's British politics. <laughs> Let's go to the days of King Jehu, which is actually quite similar in some respects. Now, King Jehu is a very interesting character, and you, you'll kind of see that as we go through this chapter. Personally, I, I, I'm not quite sure what to make of him, really. But what I would say my final opinion of him is, I like him in many ways, but you know, we're reading a part of history that is from the ancient Near East. It's undoubtedly quite a brutal period of history, and as we know, the way uh, God's judgment was often done during this time it involves a bloodshed that we are not familiar with in our day and age, and this can be quite shocking, and we will see some of that as we go through this chapter. But Israel is suffering basically still under the dark cloud from the dynasty of Ahab. You remember we've been looking at Ahab and Jezebel, this very infamous pair in the kings of Israel. Now, at the end of chapter 8, we saw the king of Israel, who was Joram, the son of Ahab. He was ruling over Israel, and we saw a man named Ahaziah, who was king of Judah who was actually also a relation of Ahab, and they were fighting the king of Syria. Both of these kings joined together to fight Haziel. Um, Joram, the king, was injured in battle. He escapes down to Jezreel, where he finds a spot, and he wants to recuperate there and heal. And his, his buddy Ahaziah from Judah goes down to find him at Jezreel, and that is basically where we pick up in chapter 9. These two kings together in Jezreel. Now, before we get into chapter 9, I want us to just read something from the book of 1 Kings that we would have studied. I think I may have even taught on 1 Kings chapter 21. Uh, this was a prophecy of Elijah. I'm going to read it to you, verses 17 to 24, because we're going to see that this chapter in 2 Kings chapter 9 is where we find the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given by Elijah. 1 Kings 21, verse 17 to 24. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where your dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baashah, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and because you have made Israel sin. Of Jezebel also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. 
the one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of the heavens will eat. So just to remind you, that was a prophecy that was given to Elijah. Now, we've gone sort of chronologically in some ways. We're in the ministry of Elisha now when we're reading this, but we are going to see the fulfillment of much of that prophecy. So let's read 2 Kings 9, verses 1 to 3. Now Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Gird up your loins and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. And when you arrive there, search out Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, and go in and bid him arise from among his brothers and bring him to an inner room. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee and do not wait. So this is the actual anointing of Jehu, which was also something prophesied back in uh, sort of 1 Kings chapter 19 that Jehu was going to be anointed king. Now, we notice that Elisha doesn't do it himself. He he kind of tasked delegates to one of his prophets, his protégés. Probably, you remember, in the period of Israel, you had these sort of the sons of the prophets, this sort of school of prophets that was handed down and down and down through generations. So he takes one of these people that he's been training up, and he says, you do this. Now, that's a tough job to take. Um, Jehu was a military commander, uh, a quite a distinguished military commander, and he had served under Ahab. So quite, you know, he'd obviously seen and maybe done quite a lot of bad stuff or been in a lot of battles at least. Now, Jehu was not a descendant of the royal line. Obviously, you know, king to be a royal, it's like it is today in many ways, it's a hereditary function. You either marry in or you... you you're born into it. But here, they're saying, we're going outside of the two royal lines that we have right now, and we're going to anoint this military commander. Let's read verses 4 to 10, then we'll make a few comments. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth-Gilead. And when he came, behold, the captains of the army were sitting. And he said, I have a word for you, O captain. And Jehu said, for which one of us? And he said, for you, O captain. And he arose and went into the house, and he poured the oil on his head and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off Ahab every male person, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baashah, the son of Ahijah. The dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. You could tell he's obviously not relishing this mission that he's been given. He's in, he's out, and then the message he gives is obviously quite a severe message. Now, a lot of these names probably lose us because it is quite hard as you read. You may have noticed this as you read through the historical books of the Old Testament to follow the chronology of who is who and who is uh, related to who and all these different sorts of things. But hopefully some of that will come become clear as we go through. So imagine the scene. This is a portion of narrative. This whole chapter is narrative. And it's a very tense scene. It would make a great movie. So you've got the armies of Israel. You can imagine they're, they're camped out. They have just been fighting with Syrian army, so they're probably 
sort of in, in battle mode, they're still near enemy territory and it's still dangerous and Jehu is one of their commanders. Chances are he's probably sitting with the other commanders um, in, in the camp of Israel. And this unknown prophet approaches the military camp. Now this is a tense moment, I would imagine, for this prophet too. Would they know he was a prophet of Israel? Would they assume he was an enemy? Would he just get killed straight away? But he obviously knows he has the calling of the Lord on his life here. But I'd imagine still it was a very tense moment. And this is where he comes up to him and he, you know, and he says, I have a message for you. And he says, who for? And he says, for you, Captain. And then Jehu obviously says, okay. And they go into this private room. And you can imagine the soldiers outside now, what they were discussing because this is, you know, we've, we've read passages like this in the history of Israel, haven't we, where kings are taken into private chambers or, or people are taken into private chambers and then they're killed. So his military commanders are probably a little unsure of what is happening right now, but Jehu is the boss and he goes in and he has this uh, anointing. The prophet then anoints him. The prophet comes out the door and basically it says he fled. The text is very strong here. It says he got out the door and he just belted it away. You know, he was, he was done. He didn't want any fallout from this. And then you see these people, they kind of ask him, what just happened? Natural question. He comes out, he's covered in oil, this kind of odd-looking guy. Remember, the prophets of Israel were very unique in their, their dress, the way they dressed, and their, you know, the, the school of the prophets were easily identifiable in Israel. Um, so they probably would have known this was a, some sort of religious act that had happened here, and they wanted him to explain it. Now, he does do that, and you notice how quickly, when he says, I've been anointed king, his commanders immediately say, great, <laughs> you're king. Jehu is king. Now, that tells you something about the current king. Remember, Jehu was not a king, he was just a military commander working for a king, and the men were so quick to basically commit treason against the reigning king and suddenly this is a coup, this is a military coup that is happening here in place, and the men were all behind it. Now, the, you know, as the story goes on, we'll see what happens, but let's just pause here and make a few sort of points of application. I believe we have a very good picture here of the way the Lord acts when he's about to call his servants to do his work. You see, the first thing that the Lord will do is obviously the anointing. Now, it won't be with oil, but we know in the Bible, oil is often used symbolically or representative of the Holy Spirit. Nothing can be done without the anointing of the Holy Spirit. All true work, beginning to end, must be a work of God's Spirit. Zechariah 4.6, not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit, says the Lord of hosts. You see, Jehu can have no commission without the oil. And it is this anointing that gives him his authority, his power, his perseverance, and ultimately the success in the mission that he's called to do, because it's a tough mission, as we're going to see. So it must be with those of us who are devoted to the Lord's service. We need that anointing. We see this in the New Testament many times. We're told to continually ask for the filling and the anointing of the Spirit in our lives. And then back to the text. It says, he arose, he went into the house. Another application from this, after the anointing or during the anointing, there is a separation that takes place. And this is an, a separation. He is a, initially he has to step up from his commanders and walk away with this other man. You see, the Spirit's call is often one of separation 
from everything around us. Every association, every influence is brought under the dominion of the Lord's calling. And we go into that inner chamber alone with the Lord. And I would say, if any of you have ever had those moments, we call it a prayer closet, don't we? And I'd say that's quite, quite a comparable situation where Jesus says you go, into the, you go into your closet and you close the door behind you and you have that time with the Lord. And as New Testament believers, we have that dwelling, that anointing with the Holy Spirit inside of us. It's a similar sort of thing going on here. But that is often when real business is done in our hearts. It's often where we're taught. It's often where the Lord convicts us of sin in our life. It's where we're trained, I would say, it's where we're commissioned, and it's often where we are empowered for the Lord in those quiet times with the Lord. You notice, remember in the Gospels, how often do you see Jesus when he's with his disciples and he says, wait here, and he wanders off into the wilderness and he prays, and then he comes back and he continues to minister. It's such a good model for us as believers. And I don't know about you, but I would say, It sounds very simple, doesn't it? But it's probably one of the things we neglect the most. We do corporate prayer, we maybe do a morning prayer, and we do prayers at sort of set times of the day that in my life anyway, they're often quite quick in the rush of the busy day. But it's those times where you just make the effort to get alone with the Lord. And shamefully, I could say, quite often those times are times after the Lord has convicted you. You've had, you, you know, you've had a bad week, you've sinned, maybe you've tripped up on various issues um, and you're just confronted with your sin and you know there's nothing else to do except go to the Lord, appeal for his mercy, his forgiveness, receive the grace that he offers in those times and then in that way you kind of just curl up with the Lord and you be with him. There's something humbling about that when the Lord does that with you and it's, um, it's quite powerful. Now we see here, Jehu goes into this room, he receives this anointing, and he has this, this, prophe- this prophecy over him now. And this is quite amazing. We're going to see one man bring down the entire dynasty of Ahab, and he's going to destroy Baal worship in Israel altogether, all in a matter of days. He needed the Lord's anointing for that. But yet notice one more thing. It says, um, when he comes back out and he explains to them, what do the guards say? They say, what is that madman? Who is this madman that's, that's come to see you? And again, this speaks to me a lot. You see, people don't understand the Lord's work. You know, you might have been called, you know, a crazy Christian or a Bible thumper or some, you know, one of these terms. We've all heard them many, many times. The world often doesn't understand the values that we hold. Because you have to remember we have different values, we come from a different kingdom, we have different citizenship now. You could say we have dual citizenship in some ways, but ultimately our destiny and our our mission, we are ambassadors for a different kingdom here. And that means there are times when we are going to come into conflict with the world in this way. It It may manifest in mocking and scorning, it may manifest in just a complete misunderstanding of what we're saying and what we're doing, and it may manifest in outright persecution as it does in many places in the world. But we mustn't be surprised when we come into the conflict with the world system like this. In fact, I would say that is probably one thing that will happen after you have that anointing, after you have that quiet time with the Lord and that empowering to do his work, because it's a clear example, not by might, not by power, of by my spirit. So the, this whole concept of um, anointing and kingship got me thinking while I was doing this during the week. 
Now, what I shared before, I've had one, a couple of those weeks where I've had those moments where I've messed up a little bit over the last few weeks. I've had different things stressing me out. You know how it is when you get like that, your, your patience is a little bit short or your guard is a little bit down and you build up these things and you don't have time to really spend that time and get right with the Lord. But then finally the desire to sort of study the Bible or read or one of these things, you do and you get that time. And often I find it's those times where I have my best Bible studies after those moments. I don't know why, I guess it's because in the act of confession, you are basically throwing yourself on the, the grace of God. You know, it, there's, there's something that is quite, you know, freeing in one sense of doing that, but also it gives you a very clear picture of who you are and who God is. And you want to focus more on God and less on yourself. And the problem is you've probably been focusing too much on yourself the last few weeks and thinking about your own issues and you end up just tripping up. Um, we've all had that. I know we all have, but that that's kind of where I had been the last few weeks. And obviously I've been studying for this Bible and I've always doing various other things as well. And I've been thinking about anointing and kingship through some other things. And quite often the Lord will do it where he'll, I'll be studying different things completely independently and they'll obviously all, they'll all tie up at one point. Um, and this happened with me. I'm just going to share with you some thoughts that I have about anointing and kingship now. And I'm not saying this is necessarily the correct interpretation, but this is something that I want to put to you now. Um, so in Jewish thought, anointing has to do with royalty. It's very much overly associated with royalty because of the stories that we have, the anointing of Saul by Samuel, the anointing of David by Samuel, and the anointing of Solomon by Nathan the prophet, and on and on. We see it here with, with, with Jehu too, um, usually in the days before the split of the kingdom when they were more in line with the, the, what the Lord was doing. But even still, that's an association that is very much in Hebraic thought and is very much in Christian thought too, and we see it even to this day. If you were to watch a British monarch be coronated, the coronation of a British monarch, some of you may have watched or seen uh, the, the last one that we had, um, they use Handel's Messiah, the famous uh, you know, composer Handel when he wrote this oratorio, Handel's Messiah. And there's one song that he wrote called Zadok the Priest, and that is the British coronation song. So as the queen is being coronated, or the king, they sing the choirs will sing Zadok the priest. And this is how the first lyrics go. It says, Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anointed Solomon king and all the people rejoiced, rejoiced, rejoiced. And then it kind of goes on into a massive choir, choir saying that thing. Zadok the priest and the prophet anointed Solomon the king. So this is the association that the anointing has. Now this got me thinking, we worship one who claims to be king of the Jews, right? He is the Messiah. That is actually what Christ means, Messiah, anointed one. Now I ask the question, when was he actually anointed by a prophet as a king? Now, interestingly, this is actually a very common objection to the Messiahship of Jesus in Jewish circles. Um, it's argued that Jesus failed to fulfill this messianic criterion, so he cannot be the true king, the true Messiah. Let me read you something out of a book. This is by a book called Asher Norman. Asher Norman is... Um, He's like a, an Orthodox Jew. He's a very well-trained scholar and anti-Christian. Uh, he, he does a lot of polemics arguing against Christianity. And he wrote, he wrote a book called 26 Reasons Why Jews Don't Believe in Jesus. And in that he said this. He said, the word Messiah means anointed with oil. All kings, high priests and prophets in the Jewish Bible are described as messiahs because they were all anointed with oil into God's service. Many Jewish prophets foretold that a particular Messiah, the Messiah ben David, would appear 
and fulfill six major prophecies that will lead the world into a special messianic era. Jesus may have claimed to be king, however, Jesus was never anointed king of Israel by a prophet. Therefore, he failed to fulfill this messianic criteria and is therefore eliminated from messianic consideration. That's from Asher Norman, he's an Orthodox Jew, obviously doesn't believe in the Messiahship of Jesus. So this again got me thinking about this issue of being anointed as king and Jesus as the king. Now we need to realise obviously some principles here, that what we see in the Old Testament, like quite often with Saul, with David, with this anointing, the external act that we see is often representing a deeper spiritual, quite often internal truth. We see the same sort of thing with baptism for us today. The external act represents something that's already happened on the inside. Um, and a lot of the stuff that we see the priest doing in the Old Testament have this sort of dual meaning. And I believe we see this with the anointing of kings, because ultimately dipping oil on someone's head can't actually do anything to equip them for service to be a king of Israel. What that is representing is that they have the blessing and the anointing of God on them. And I believe it is really talking about the anointing of the Holy Spirit at that time. Now, that's not necessarily revolutionary. A lot of people would agree with that. But when we're talking about the Messiah, let me read to you a couple of prophecies from Isaiah 42. It says, Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. It's a prophecy about the future reign of the Lord. Isaiah 61, verse 1. It says, The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the broken heart hearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners. Very famous messianic text there. So it's not that he wasn't anointed, it's just the manner of anointing is slightly different. It wasn't necessarily the oil, it was what the oil is actually ultimately pointing to is what would anoint the messianic, ki messianic king, and this is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. So then I ask the question, when was Jesus anointed by a prophet to be king? And there's really only one place that I could think of in the New Testament where we see this. And you can turn to Matthew 3 with me and we'll read it together. <coughs> Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 17. It says this, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptised by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptised by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. And after being baptised, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now there's some things here that stand out. Now, We've recently been to the Jordan, and I hope you can all picture the sort of wilderness and the environment and the scene that we have there. Who was doing the baptizing here? John. John. And John was the last of the prophets. From that line, the school of the prophets, going right back to the days of Elisha and Elijah. He was the last of the prophets. And this tells you something about why. It says he came at the appointed time. I believe this fits in with that. He was the last of the prophets. Now, what I am proposing here is that what if the baptism of Jesus that we see here 
um, was more than just him being anointed for power, which is how we often teach it, more than just him identifying with the Jewish people, which is how we often teach it. And I think we've even had a question about it at some time, I vaguely remember here. And these are the answers that I gave to identify with his people, preparing him for service to go and do ministry. And not that those things are wrong, I believe they're true, but I think maybe something more is going on here. What is if this event, the baptism of Jesus here, is his royal anointing for kingship? Because it fits all the criterion that were prophesied, and we have it being done by a prophet here in that sense. And this is why we have this amazing event that happens afterwards. The heavens are opened, and we see the audible voice of God, and we actually see a visual representation of the Holy Spirit. One of the very few times we actually see that, because like you would see when someone was being anointed with oil, it would visibly come down upon them. And here we see the dove, the Holy Spirit, coming down upon Jesus. And I'm more, more convinced as I study this now that this is actually this moment, this was Jesus' anointing to be the king. So therefore, in answer to the claim of Asher Norman, you could say he was anointed by a prophet, not with oil, but with the true oil, the Holy Spirit here. He was anointed for king. Now, he's not reigning as king. This is another issue. He's not on the throne of David yet, and it's still referring to this throne of David that we see, but we see this pattern in the scripture and we see it in the New Testament. Remember, Saul uh, David was anointed before he came to the throne. Saul was still on the king. We've just seen Jehu's just been anointed, but he's not actually king yet. There's still someone else on the throne. When you get to the book of Revelation, this is the book dealing with the last days. What do we see in that time period? There is someone on earth who is imitating Jesus. He is a usurper of the throne. He is acting as king. We call him commonly the Antichrist. But literally the word means anti-messiah, which means false anointed one. And what has anointing got to do with? Being king. That's why the world is often described as the kingdom of Satan, you know, the prince of the power of the air. He's got his man on the throne during this period of history. And that's what we read in the Revelation. So Jesus, yes, has been anointed, but he's in the same period like Saul and David were. He has not yet taken the throne. There is a usurper on the throne at this moment. But as you read the book of Revelation, as you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you will see there is a time when the rightful king comes to reclaim his throne. And you see him in that amazing passage. We see it in Matthew 24. And the king coming on the clouds of glory with the armies of heaven heaven following after him on white horses. That's a king's entrance to take his throne. And even in Revelation 11, it even says this. Revelation chapter 11 verse 15 says, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And then it says, and the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give thanks to you, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. So this is parallel. This is that same moment. Just like David, just like Jehu here, there was a usurper on the throne. We will see that one day when the rightful king does come to claim his throne. And we know everything that happens from that event. He destroys the person who is um, usurping his throne. He throws anyone who would side with that person, he deals out judgment to. And it's a, it's a climactic period of history. But we know, but this is it. 
this is the true king, this is the eternal king, there will be no successor to him. Unlike David who died, unlike Jehu who died, all the kings of Israel, they died. This is the one who will never die again. So this is why we call it the messianic kingdom that is coming now. What does messianic mean? It means anointed. This is the anointed kingdom. This is almost, you could say, this is everything that the Bible is pointing towards at this time being fulfilled now. And you could go even further in that passage. It says the 24 elders who are sitting on thrones. Now, kings sit on thrones. Who are the 24 elders? Big debate in theology. I strongly make the argument that they are representative of the redeemed church at this time. But here is the amazing thing. You see, we as Christians, we have this same anointing because it's by the same spirit. We are partakers of Christ's body. Therefore, we are said that we are also kings and priests in the Bible. It's one of these blessings that we don't really understand and we don't think about too much in the Bible. But at this time, when the kingdoms of this world are transferred to the kingdom of the Lord, it's said that those who are redeemed with him will also be ruling and reigning with him. And we need to dwell more on that as a church, I believe. Now, even for us now, we sort of have this dichotomy where we're kind of said we're kings but we don't feel like that right now we are living in a sort of in-between time we're fighting a usurper in our own lives we have him he's called the flesh you know this thing that we want rid of that challenges us that grieves us that causes us to sin so much in our lives the spirit you know is how we overcome that at this time but one day when we are united and we see the king face to face we know these issues will be taken away from us there is a time when it will go you see, this is the future king. The king is coming. And this is one thing we need to remember. This is why the doctrine of the kingdom is so important. And this is what another reason why I find it so tragic that the vast majority of the church have a specific view of this that completely does away with all of that future stuff that I've just talked about. They won't, they won't agree with any of that stuff I've just said. They have a different view of the kingdom. It's all now and it's spiritual, it's internal. There's some truth in what they're saying, but they're denying this future element, which is this, the part I, I see as the most exciting when Christ comes to throw off the usurper and to transfer everything into his kingship. We call this the messianic kingdom. So that, you can kind of tell how my mind works. That's what I was going as I was thinking about this passage uh, with Jehu and this whole issue of anointing. And that's probably why we didn't get into chapter 10. <laughs> but... I thought it was worth sharing with you. Let's, right, where did we pick up? Let's read uh, from 11 down to 16 now. Now, Jehu came out to the servants of his master and one said to him, is all well? Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, you know very well the man and his talk. They said, it's a lie. Tell us now. And he said, thus and thus, he said to me, thus says the Lord, I have anointed you king over Israel then they hurried and each man took his garment and placed it under him on the bare steps and blew the trumpet saying Jehu is king. So Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, the son of Nimshi, conspired against Joram. And now Joram uh, was with all Israel defending Ramoth Gilead against Haziel, king of Aram. But King Joram had returned to Jezreel to be healed of the wounds which the Arameans had inflicted on him when he fought with Haziel, king of Aram. So Jehu said, is this your mind? Then let no one escape or leave the city to go tell it to Jezreel. Then Jehu rode in a chariot and went to Jezreel for Joram lying there. Uh, Ahaziah, king of Judah, had come down to see him. So this is basically just a kind of re recap of what I've mentioned there a little bit. 
Um, Jehu is a, still a commander in the army. They've really got no reason to be suspicious of him at the moment, and he is going to the king. More than likely, they would see their commander coming and they would think that he has some news about the battle they've just fought or an impending issue that they need to know about. Let's read verses 17 to 20. And we'll carry on here. Now the watchman was standing on the tower of Jezreel and he saw the company of Jehu as he came. And he said, I see a company. And Joram said, take a horseman and send it to meet them and let him say, is it peace? So a horseman went to meet him and said, thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu said, what have you to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported the messenger came to them, but he did not return. Then he sent out a second horseman who came to them and said, Thus says the king, is it peace? And Jehu answered, What do you have to do with peace? Turn behind me. And the watchman reported, He came even to them, and he did not return. And the driving is like the driving of Jehu, the son of Nimshi, for the drivers he drives furiously. So Jehu and his army are approaching the city. They have a watchman on the wall who sees the company coming, and as the usual practice, they would send out a rider to investigate what is happening. So they send out the first rider. He approaches Jehu, and he asks, What's going on? Is it peace? And Jehu says, well, we're not going to talk about that, but you're not going back, so get to the back of the line. And these guys obviously go back to the line. And then the watchman thinks, well, that's weird. What's going on? We'll send out another rider. Another rider comes out. Exactly the same thing happens. So they haven't actually been told what's happening, but the fact that the riders appeared to just join the party and come back with them probably gave them, oh, there's nothing serious happening here. It's not like they've been killed or they were having their heads laid on our door which is also common practice in those days for that sort of thing. And we'll, we'll probably see a little bit of that as we go through. But he doesn't let them return. And the kings obviously, well, let's just, let's read verses 21 to 26. I know there's a lot of narrative here, and then we'll make some comments on this. Then Joram said, get ready. And this is the king, so he says, and they made his chariot ready. Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, went out each in his chariot, and they went out to meet Jehu and found him in the property of Naboth the Jezreelite. That's important. And it came about when Joram saw Jehu that he said, Is it peace, Jehu? And he answered, What peace? So long as the harlotries of your mother Jezebel and her witchcrafts are so many. So Joram reigned about and fled and said to Ahaziah, There is treachery over Ahaziah. And Jehu drew his bow with his full strength and shot Joram between his arms and the arrow went through his heart and he sank in his chariot. Then Jehu said to Bidkar, his officer, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father that the Lord said this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his son, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, Take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. <laughs> this scene is, now obviously it's brutal in many ways, but it, it, there's an, a kind of comic irony in this. Because you have these two kings, the king of Israel and the king of Judah, who are not really <laughs> supposed to be together in that sense, but they have a common bond here over a number of different things. One, they were both Baal worshippers, they were both pretty apostate, they were both related to Ahab and they were both sticking together for comfort and security and fighting the Syrians. They see Jehu coming. They think, this is our, one of our lead commanders, he's faithful, let's go out, find out what he has to say. So they both come out, and then they obviously ask that same question, is it peace? That's just a way of saying, what's going on? 
what's happening. And then obviously Jehu lets his true intentions be known and he says those very strong, you can imagine the scene, those very strong words. Jehu's the man with the army behind him right now. The kings don't have an army behind him. They probably have a few escorts and that, but Jehu's the military commander and he's got the army with him. And he says, how can there be peace as long as the harlotries of your mother are still with us? He's basically their fighting words right there. And immediately you notice Joram knows what's happening. And it says he reigned. My Bible says he reigned. That means he made a sharp turn and he tried to pelt it the other way. And Jehu, a trained soldier, arrow in his back and he's dead. And that's the end, really, of one of the dynasties of Israel. But what's interesting is notice where all of this happens. It happens at the vineyard of Naboth. Now, who remembers that story? When Ahab and Jezebel were ruling in the early days of their career, Ahab wanted Naboth's vineyard, but he would not sell it to him. So Jezebel basically said, let, let me handle this. You know, you're, you're having trouble dealing with this. I'm going to deal with it. She had him killed and they took control of his vineyard. And notice the text says that this is Naboth's vineyard still. It was taken by illicit means and it is really well that where the true intentions of Jezebel were made very, very clear. One of the acts that got her, her reputation is poetic justice. You see, and then uh, the king is killed, this descendant, this, this man who stands in the line of Ahab and he is thrown Jehu in a kind of ruthless way, but he sees this as fulfilling the Lord's judgments. He's you know, cleansing the house of Ahab here, and he lies there in the field of Naboth, and that's where the blood, you know, that's where he dies. You see, is it for peace? You see that question? I love that question. And he, he says, how can there be peace when the harlotries of Jezebel, and she was into sorcery and Baal worship and all sorts of things, um, because she came from a different land, and that was the gods of her father's. Um, but this is a good question for us too. You, how can there be peace in our own hearts and in our own lands if we do things that are contrary to the word of God? And I'm not talking about you know, slipping up into sin and confessing your sin. That's kind of part of sanctification, part of the walk. I'm talking maybe more as a more sort of a communal sense as a church when we do things. Like I don't know if you've all been following a lot of the, the Stop Stella campaign and the, the, you, we've seen Susie and all her campaigning for that. It shocks me as I watch these things, how many Christians speak up in favor of abortion. Um, now we might think in our circles, you might think, oh, that sounds like a very odd thing. It's not a very odd thing. It's actually really, really common. Um, and I could multiply that with many, many, many other issues. You see, and when I see things like that, I'm not looking at it and being, oh, you know, we're, we're right, they're wrong. How? That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, from the scriptures, it seems very clear that God's heart, it even says actually in Jeremiah that God, it is not nowhere in God's heart that he would imagine the death of the children in that way. And that seems fairly clear to me. And if we have the church campaigning and arguing for these sorts of things, then that for me is, a, is arguing for something that is against the word of God. It, for me, it's a very good example of what Jezebel was doing as she mixed with the kingdom of Israel. And she brought it in. How can there be peace when that's happening? And the word peace there, shalom, remember. It's not just talking about no war. It's talking about an inner wholeness 
uh, often used in the sense of a spiritual piece as well as a physical piece. They can't be. It's a good point. Now, Jerom turned to flee. He's shot. His body is dumped in the vineyard. And God uses that phrase that he, can, he sees the blood, doesn't he? And it reminds me of Genesis chapter 4. Remember right back in the early days, antediluvian world, when Cain and Abel, and you had that first murder. And what does the Lord say? He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And this is the same sort of passage that we have here. Naboth's blood is still crying out from the ground. That is why this is happening right now. Let's read verses 27 to 29 as we carry on going through this. When Ahaziah, the king of Judah, saw this, he fled by the way of the garden house, and Jehu pursued him and said, Shoot him too in the chariot. So they shot him at the ascent of Gur, which is at Ibrium, but he fled to Megiddo and died there. Then his servants carried him in a chariot to Jerusalem and buried him in, uh, sorry, buried him in, in his grave with his fathers in the city of David. Now in the eleventh year of Joram, the son of Ahab, Ahaziah became king of Judah. So we see here the next part. So the king of Israel, who's a direct kind of descendant of Ahab, he's killed. He's left to die on Naboth's vineyard. Ahaziah, who's a king of Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was supposed to be the, really the line of kings that had Jerusalem and that continued proper worship down at the temple and was supposed to be the spiritual, but he's up here fraternizing with the king of Israel for various different reasons. He probably shouldn't really have been there, but actually he himself is also related to Ahab, and he was killed at the same time. He tried to flee, and Jehu says, get him, get him too. He sends his men after him, and he's also killed. But he's, because he's a king of Judah, he's given a slightly more honorable death, and he's allowed to go back to Jerusalem and be buried in the tomb. However, he was killed because he was happy to associate and work with the king of Israel in spite of the clear wickedness of the house of Ahab. And therefore, because of that, he suffered the same fate in the same judgment. And I think this is, again, a very important lesson for us today. We often think that we can associate, be around people even on a very personal level, and not be influenced by them. Now, you all know it's great if you can be an influencer and you can influence people to the Lord, but many of us will know it can be very, very difficult to do that. And if you are, especially if you're the odd one out, so to speak, it's, it's much more common that you will see people getting influenced by people. <laughs> if you've ever done youth ministry, you'll, you'll see this through. We have a joke among youth pastors that there's a certain percentage. By the time you get them from like 13 to 21, you know, if you've got 50% through, then you're doing pretty well. And that's just usually because of associations and all these different sorts of things. Now, we, we're saying it tongue-in-cheek, obviously. It's, it's like an internal joke there. But, you know, a lot of them will probably, hopefully the seeds will plant and they'll come back to faith in later life. But these are the sorts of things. We mustn't underestimate the, that aspect. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with covetous and swindlers or idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. Now that's important. You know, he's not saying isolate yourself in a monastery so you don't have any contact with the world because the world is so evil. In fact, he's emphasizing that's not what he's saying. He says, but I actually wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he is an immoral person, 
a covetous, an adulterer, a viler, a drunkard, a swindard, not even to eat with such a one. His command is much stronger here. And this is, and you know, many of us probably know this to be true in life. Someone who claims to be a Christian, and you probably see more than you would in many ways, but does not have any intention to live a Christian life, if you are partnering with them in any, any way, whatever it may be, the chances are you will end up acting like them rather than them acting like you. It's not always the case, that's no set rule. In my experience, that would, that's what I've seen many, many times over, and that is the situation, because it's just hard. These things just seem to happen. I believe that's what Paul's getting at here. Be very careful about the associations you make. You know, when it says don't be unequally yoked, and people obviously use that in a sort of relationship thing, that's absolutely fine. But I think it's also replying in a much more general way than that. Any association that we have can influence us, either for good or for bad, or, and some for sort of nothing, really, in that sense. But the risk is always there, and we need to just be very uh, careful about that on a personal level. I'm sure many of us have actually had that happen to us. You've been hanging around with someone, even if you know, you're not necessarily doing bad stuff, but you know, the tone is lowered by certain people, and you, you take part in these things, and you joke. All the, you can think of a million examples, and I'm sure you all know what I'm talking about. But on a personal level, we need to be careful for that. But then this is more than this. We're talking about, obviously, the church as a collective body. You'll notice that the Kingdom of Israel was always talked about as a collective body. So we need to think about it as a collective body. And I believe this is a lesson that there are, in fact, dangers of partnering with those in ministry who deny many of the fundamental aspects of the Christian faith. Now, there's plenty of room for a difference of opinion and agreement on non-essential areas in the Christian faith. Um, and it's fun, and you can actually grow a lot in your faith by discussing these sorts of issues. But there are areas, and there are some things, where you will find it very hard. Some churches will find it very hard to partner with other churches. Now, this is sort of a paradox like we have of this age, where the flesh and free will and these things are still ruling, but we see it. Now, I spent most of my time in the car today. I listened to a lot of podcasts in the car. Um, there's one called The Unbelievable Podcast. It's a, an apologetic show. Um, they'll get two people on, one of one view and one of a different view, and they'll discuss things. Usually it's like an atheist Christian type thing, but they always do Christian issues too. And the one they had today was a guy called Steve Chalk on with uh, another brother who I forget his name uh, fr- from London. Was that it? Yeah, yeah, that was it. And did you listen to it? Yeah. yeah. Now, I don't know what you thought of it, I had to stop after like 40 minutes. I just can't stand Steve Chalk, um, the way he talks about the Word of God. I mean, he is a progressive, and that means that he denies so many different things about the Bible, but yet he's considered a leader in the evangelical church. He won't claim to be an evangelical anymore. He says he's moved too far from that, and he's very clever, and he uses a lot of really good words about having a conversation and just entering into dialogue with everyone and really these are just cover words for what I believe is um, plain old liberalism dressed up in modern garb and that's what he does and it's it was it was it was not a fun podcast to listen to but I don't know if you know the influence that these people have on people now you can see the writings of someone like this I'm not going to pick on him particularly but there's a whole movement that will use these sorts of views and they will attack the word of God. They'll attack the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the atonement of Jesus Christ. They'll attack justification by faith. 
And it's done very subtly, academic talk, and it's all very popular. Now, I would say we shouldn't partner with people like that in ministry, and I'd be quite strict on that. Whilst I'd be happy to have a discussion and talk about these things, there is a point where you have to say that's not what we stand for. Jake came home from school today, and he says they're doing their yoga next week at school. They've all been told about this. And obviously, Jake was kind of like, he knows that he's not going to do yoga. We've already talked about that. Um, and I've, he knows what yoga is, and I'm, I'm, we, were, we were sort of going through the battle. Do we go and speak to the teachers? And we've basically decided, because of Jake, Jake kind of knows the answers and why he's pretty definite he doesn't want to do yoga, he's not going to do it. We are going to let Jake actually explain to them. They know Jake's quite a Christian. Like They, they had the diocese inspection this week which is where the Church of England come to inspect the school, and they pick Jake to be the one student that they get to interview, which I thought was funny. <laughs> I, was like, I would have rather they didn't, because they might get a false idea of, of what the actual school is like. But anyway, so I'm sure he got some very fundamental doctrines in there for them. So <laughs> Ofsted will probably be around shortly. But, um, but anyway, so the, you know, this is another issue. This is a Christian school, um, Christian head teacher, and yet you get these things coming in. It's an association that you have. And I would say associations are dangerous because, you know, before you know it, you might end up lying on the floor of Naboth's vineyard, so to speak, because of that association that you have. And now maybe hopefully not something like that, but you might end up coming under judgment in your own life personally because of those things. So we need to be very careful about the idols of our age that we imbibe because we're a church and we're in the culture. It's it's hard not to imbibe the culture. One thing that always fascinates me is when I read and look at church bodies around the world, like Iran at the moment is an amazing story of what's happening with the church in Iran. They're saying it's one of the fastest revivals in, in history. Most of it's led by women in Iran, uh, for whatever reason. That They are the leaders of mo- most, most of the churches that are happening out there because it's not obviously they don't have a, the freedom to have a proper church structure like they would, but this is what is happening. They have a different context and a different understanding. We in our culture have all the issues that we have and we imbibe that and they're the old favorites, power, sex, money, glory, entertainment, all of these sorts of things. We have new ones today. I would say gender identity and nature worship are current idols of the age. How many of you have been watching all the Extinction Rebellion things? I'm not making a political point about climate control. Don't misunderstand me. But as I've been watching those things, See, one thing you will know, that the worship of nature goes back a long, 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 long way in history. The Apostle Paul warned about it, that when people reject God, a spiritual vacuum happens, and there is a natural propensity to fill that vacuum with something else, and quite often nature is the one that fills it. Now, I've spent hours watching the interviews of the rebellion, and whilst it makes for some very good memes, some of them, if you've seen them, they're quite amusing, it's not a joke, actually. There's some real serious stuff going on. There was one I watched just today, and this was happening just outside, I forget where it was, uh, near St. Paul's in London. It was a very famous, famous place. And there were hundreds of them, and they were lighting these torches, and they had a fire going, and there was a woman there basically giving a religious sermon, and she was talking about the light of the world, talking about the fires. She's referring to Mother Nature when she says the light of the world. And she, she invited everyone of every persuasion. She was very clear to say non-binary and non-gender and all these sorts of things. Everyone cheered. And then everyone comes along and she said, now as you light the light of truth, I want you to follow this beacon up into the, into the eternal 
the eternal mother, basically, Gaia, and all these sorts of... This is a very ancient paganism that we're seeing on the hard left of this eco-movement. And it's, we're going to see more of it, I believe. And, and I believe it'll actually have a more serious consequence that it can be used to change laws. If you think this is just about climate control and animals, you haven't really understood what's going on behind the scenes. There is a much more sinister movement to a lot of these. I'm all for being wise stewards of the creation that we have, and I'd like to see less abuses in a lot of areas I could go on about. But some of the ideologies behind this thing, another way, they were interviewing one of the leaders, and they were talking to her about how she gets her inspiration and her power, and she quite frankly said that she prays. But she wasn't praying, obviously, to God. She wasn't a Christian. This was ancient paganism. And she even said on the interview, oh, I know this sounds a bit weird, but this is what happens. And the interviewer loved it. They were talking about it. Now, obviously, you wouldn't get that with Christianity, but this is the sort of the move of the moment. And we will see more and more of this. And it is very much like a religion. You have these people giving their sermons. You have their kind of their saints <laughs> who are almost apostolized in these movements. And they have their, their religious doctrines. You'll see more of this. And again, we need to be very careful with our associations. There's a seminary in America called Union Seminary. It's a big seminary. Very progressive now, but it was one day quite conservative. In light of this, they released a post on their Instagram page. It was a picture of a students, a class of students sitting around, around plants. And the message was that these theological students were being taught to confess to the plants. Um, because that releases a healing energy. We laugh at it, but this is, this is what is happening, releasing a healing energy and, you know, personal empowerment and all these sorts of things. Just watch this trend, is what I'm saying, and be, be wise about reading sort of behind the lines of what you see. We're going to see a lot more of this. Now, let's finish up this chapter. 30 to 37. When Jehu came to Jezreel, Jezebel heard of it. And she painted her eyes and adorned her head and looked out of the window. And as Jehu entered the gate, she said, it is, is it well, Zimri, your master's murderer? Then he lifted up his face to the window and said, who is on my side? Who? And two or three officials looked down at him. And he said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. And when he came in, he ate and drank and he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found no more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. And therefore they returned and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke to his servant Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel, and the corpse of Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say, this here is Jezebel. Now here we see the end of Jezebel. She painted her eyes, she made herself look nice, she knew her end was coming, she wanted to go out like a boss that she considered herself to be, and she made herself, she was going to die with respect. She comes down and she shouts this phrase about Zimri, that's actually an insult, she's saying there Zimri was someone, like a commander who did a similar coup to Jehu earlier on, and it didn't work out well for him. You notice Jehu, he's unfazed, he just says, who's on my side? He's not even talking, doesn't even address her. Who's on my side? And he gets the nod from two or three of her staff, and he says, throw her down. You see, a woman as mean as Jezebel was going to have a lot of enemies within her own staff, you see. And now the two kings have been killed. She's got no power. So that's when her own people turn on her. They throw her down. And you notice Jehu, he rides his horse over her into the city triumphantly. 
squish, squishing her along the way. And they ride in and he goes straight to the banquet hall and he feasts. Um, it gives you a little insight kind of into the character of Jehu, which we're going to see in chapter 10, where he takes a turn for the worse in many ways. And then he says, actually, she was a king's daughter. Maybe we should bury her properly. Sends a man out. He doesn't go out himself. Sends a man out to go and get her. And she's been eaten by the dogs, which, again, was quite, quite common. Many scholars presume these are actually the same dogs that Jezebel used to feed people to during her reign. So it's, again, poetic dust, justice. They come in and they say to him, sorry, <laughs> can't do that. She's been eaten. And he says, oh, well, that's fulfillment of the prophecy. And he kind of rephrases the prophecy of Elijah um, that this was always going to happen to her. This was the end of her fate. And he says in verse 37, Jezebel shall be as dung on the face of the field. And there's a kind of wordplay going on here in the Hebrew. Jezebel, it kind of comes from a root, Ezebel, which is one of the words for dung, um, or island of dung, or, or various different forms it can take. And you'll notice in the New Testament, there's someone else who has that, who they share a name that shares the same root, and it's Beelzebul. It's the same, same root letters there, if you put that into Hebrew, which means Lord of the Flies or Lord of Dung, as a lot of people translate it. And I believe there's a connection being made here about the sort of true nature between these two characters, Jezebel and Satan. You see an eternal reference there to the character of Jezebel. She was afforded no grave, so that no one could say, here lies Jezebel. She was eaten by the dogs. And more than that, her name is forever associated with wickedness. This is her legacy. Now, just in closing, let's contrast this. Um, we learn in the next chapter about Jehu. What's his legacy? He oversteps his mark in judging Ahab's house and he commits some great acts of cruelty. Um, and it says that he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord with all his heart. And that there is really the key of the whole issue that we're talking about. He was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord with his heart. So no sooner had he taken over the kingdom from the house of Ahab, he was having to fight for his kingdom from invading armies from Assyria, and they partitioned off part of his empire. Now, some of you went up to the British Museum, didn't you, on Saturday? Now, did you get shown the black obelisk of Shalmaneser, which was a, a tall obelisk about this tall, and it has different panels going down it? If you weren't, you should have been. It's one of the most amazing things you were shown it, yeah. I'd imagine they would do it on every tour. Um, what this is, I was lying down on his side, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah. Black obelisk of Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser was an Assyrian king, and he was the one who came to power pretty much after Jehu took, took reign. And Jehu was forced to pay homage and give tribute to this Assyrian king. And there's a relief of it on this obelisk. And it's the only picture we have of an Israelite king. And, and his servants. And it's very, archaeologically, it's amazing, it's fascinating, and it um, you know, gives a lot of credibility to the stories in the Bible that we have. But I want us just to think about what we see here, okay? He's bowing to a pagan king, and the inscription on the obelisk reads, I receive tribute of Jehu, the house of Omri. That's Shalmanasseh, the, the Assyrian king. He's bowing to a, pa a pagan king, Ultimately, that's where he ends up because he was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord with his whole heart. Joram, dead, lying in Naboth's vineyard. Ahaziah, killed, trying to flee because of association with Joram. Jezebel, eaten by dogs. And Jehu ended up bowing to a pagan king. Why? Because none of them followed the law of the Lord in their heart. Now, we know there is only one true king 
and he is the one that one day every knee will bow to. And we get to bow our knees to him voluntarily as a privilege in this life now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you so much for it, Father, the truth it contains, the way it reveals our own nature, Lord, but also your wonderful Son. And I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, equip us now for the next few days, that we would think on these things, Lord, whatever is right, pure, true, and honorable, and these things would impact our lives. In Jesus' name, for his sake. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources, please go to thomasfretwell.com.